Welcome to Podcast on Fire on Aces Got Places 5, Terracotta Hit and So Close. So it's the end of the Aces Go Places series and uh, with Young Faces uh, Company, the veteran uh, faces, that, that's the dealio here and it's also aided by a veteran kung fu filmmaker. Uh, so uh, how does the fifth entry, the Terracotta, the terracotta Hit fare? So we'll let you know how that uh, works out and uh, also with a little help from Columbia TriStar, Corey Yun uh, does uh, impeccable looking girls with guns in So Close from 2002. And my name is Kenny B. And with me to close out the Aces Go Places series coverage. And uh, I'm going to make him stop uh, his oogling at Hugh uh, K and the ladies. Uh, and uh, that man is East Green, West Green's Paul Fox. Who do you prefer? Hugh K, Chawe or Karen Mock? Go. Oh, wow. It uh, depends on which moment of the movie I'm watching. <laughs> We're talking about the movie in particular. Um, I'd probably go Karen Mock if we're just looking at filmographies in general. Cool, and uh, welcome back, Paul, and congratulations uh, in the timeline here. Uh, you've had a newborn enter the world, and um, uh, congratulations to that, and I'm also glad that you're home safe and sound after heading out of uh, Hurricane Irma's uh, way. Yes, thank you indeed. Uh, we dodged a bullet, and uh, we're, the family is safe and happy and healthy, and we couldn't really ask for anything more at this point. And before we get going with our review of Aces Go Places 5, let's do some really quick contact information. And for all your Podcast on Fire network needs, go to podcastonfire.com, where this show on Hong Kong Cinema New and Old resides, along with all our other shows on a variety of uh, cinema from Asia, whether Japanese, Korean, sleazy, ninja tinted is... Uh something uh, that's up to you, up your alley i hope we have something that suits you and we do bonus episodes every now and again so check that out if you have any questions or feedback especially on this series aces go places it's a series where i i actually love this quite a bit if you ask someone you poll people what's your favorite aces go places series or um, movie in the series and you rank it from uh one through five because no one is including 97 aces go places so let's just get that clear right from the bat that one does not belong which one doesn't belong 97 aces go places that one that one is out not team tam but anyway if you ask people of what's their favorite movie in the series you get a variety of answers which i always completely love Uh, people say five five is the best one the series got better and better and better people say one people say four on a on one particular day i can say for myself one two four three five on another day i'll say one two three four five four movies i quite like in the fifth one hmm. which we'll get to so off the cuff paul uh, what's your favorite aces go places movie today yeah i have to go with your second ranking of one two three four five and and that's fair. I think one can never be knocked off uh, the top. It's uh, just the uh, the freshness of the pairings and all of that, and the action tint and uh, des- the design helps uh, move things along. But let us know. Podcast on fire at Google Mail dot com. What's your favorite Aces Go Places movie? And uh, join us over on social media. Click the various buttons leading to initially Facebook. You can join our group once you're on Facebook. It's called Podcast on Fire Network. Click the Twitter button on our, on our site to follow our tweet. Click the iTunes button to follow our feed and subscribe and click Stitcher Radio. But regardless, Stitcher Radio is the place where you can stream our shows, either on the website or the application available on the Apple App Store or Google Play. And my site for reviews of a variety of Hong Kong and Taiwanese movies. Uh, I'll throw some Ninja in there, I'll throw some Category 3 in there, I'll throw some inappropriate children's movies from Taiwan in there. And that's so soGoodReviews.com. My video reviews are 
placed over at sleazykvideo.com. I recently won a big battle pool over Fortune Star. I don't think Fortune Star realized they were in a battle. Quick story. I got a copyright strike too on my YouTube channel with my basic uh, video reviews. And you know I speak over fairly random clips, no audio from the movie, and that's the review. And I place purchase links if, if there are. Uh, places still where you can purchase these uh, movies. It, essentially, that copyright strike meant that I essentially uploaded the whole movie. That's the way they saw it. So I contested it. Then you can. Uh, via YouTube, you put together some uh, some material that this is fair use. And they forward it to Fortune Star in this case. They have about 10 days to um, counter. Guess, um, do, do you think I heard anything from Fortune Star? Or was there any back and forth in terms of, we see it this way. I say it this way. Do you think there was any back and forth? Survey says no. Exactly. It just ran out and my strikes were lifted. So there you are. They manually detected that they thought this was in violation of copyright. It was not like they placed a thing where there are going to be ads over it and there's going to be no monetization on it. That's not the tactic they used. No, they went for the full strike. You're as bad as the people who upload full movies. Thank you. But I won ultimately. So... There it is. People have had a worse time with uh, YouTube and copyright strikes. They get like free tight strikes and then they're out and then there's no way to counter that because your channel is uh, is uh, dead and buried. But uh, I, I managed to... Uh, and they, they targeted really old reviews that were poorly recorded in terms of uh, uh, sound and very poorly edited. It's probably not even in 480p. I think it was below that. They targeted that. That seemed dangerous. Well, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a danger to their sales of movies like Haunted Office and Set Up. Those were the, those were the movies in question. Do you remember those movies, Paul? Yeah, I remember Haunted Office. The 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 thing I find amazing though is that they actually have somebody at Fortune Star looking for these, and, and not just a bot doing it. I got uh, the name and contact information. His name is Alfred. Mm, so that's the person who's bored. Contesting stuff that's not even available. For commercial purchase, probably, I'm guessing. Yeah, probably out of print, but I'm not. Com- I'm not uh, featuring the full movies anyway. So why even bother to manually sit there and like, aha, I found something to do, which was probably Mr. M's uh, uh, reasoning that day at work. <laughs> I got one, as Annie Potts would say. Anyway, enough of that rant. Uh, I'm also available at Twitter at So Good Reviews, Paul. Fellow uh, podcaster, but you're also an honorary co-producer and co-host of this episode. So uh, plug OA, what's the podcast called that you do host fairly frequently despite being a family man and now of uh, two? Yeah, we're on hiatus for a bit at the time of this recording, uh, but hopefully we'll be back sooner rather than later. It is East Screen, West Screen, and you can find us over at Comcast.com. You were brave enough to still do an episode despite being sick recently. <laughs> you know, so uh, you're, you're much, much more of a an, an, an alpha male compared to me. I would have been such a pussy. And I'm sick. But to be fair, I didn't actually do the episode. I, I did kind of peter out because I was going to do a review of the Netflix Death Note. But this was when we were on Exodus uh, to evade Hurricane Irma. And I didn't bring my recording mic with me. So all I had was my little... Uh, Apple earphone, earpod mic, which you can very much hear when you hear my sound on that, combined with the fact that I was sick. Still am sick a little bit, but... You, you still did it, man, and you put out an episode. I would have put everything on hiatus. Kevin did his due diligence while he was basically on vacay in Japan. He, you know, sat down and gave a trip report, 
did a couple film reviews and it got to the point where I was like, okay, I'm not getting any better. I don't want to delay getting his, you know, the, what he did already. You know, I don't want to delay that too much longer. So I decided to just, you know, slap it in there and he did all the heavy lifting for that episode. And the, the website is concast.com and we are going to take a musical break and uh, after that we'll return and conclude the coverage of the Aces Go Places series. We've actually done the 97 one in an Alan Tam episode, so uh, there's no no need to do anything else after this unless the series get, uh, gets uh, rebooted with uh, a fresh cast. But uh, so far in 2017, and no uh, further Aces Go Places. So this is, in my opinion, the last one. So see you after the break. And welcome back, and the first review of this episode is Aces Go Places 5, a terracotta hit from 1989, a plot from the City on Fire review of the film. Uh, the plot itself sees King Kong, played by Sam Hoy and Baldy, Carl Macca, down on their luck, uh, disowned by the police and living separate lives. Leslie Chung and Nina Lee Chi, playing sibling burglars, uh, partially intercept a villainous group's attempt to steal the terracotta warriors and to ensure the cops are thrown off the trail they disguise themselves to look like Hoy and Maka's character and therefore framing them for a crime they didn't commit. Ending up in possession of the Chinese Excalibur events culminate in both the old aces played by Hoi and Maka and the new aces Leslie Chung and Nina Lichi. Uh, they are being hired by the Chinese government to retrieve the stolen warriors and return them to China. Maybe we should hold off on the uh, short opinion of Aces Go Places 5 because we stole Aces Go Places 4 away from you because that was done as part of the director's series on Ringo Lamb. So before you do your short opinion on 5, let me hear a little uh, quick blurb on your thoughts on Aces Go Places uh, 4 and what you thought of that. So uh, the floor is yours. Well, I think if you, as as we discussed, sort of the rundown of how we rank these, um, four is not held so dear to my heart as some of the earlier films. It does bring in uh, the bad guy from Raiders of the Lost Ark, which you guys uh, discussed in, in great detail. Hi, Hitler. And yeah. And, and, and again, thinking about how they're kind of breaking some aspects of thematic walls, be they cinematic or, or whatnot, because you're not sure, is he the actor who played the guy who's now a villain or it depends if you watch it in cantonese versus english they do it differently i don't remember which one i think in cantonese essentially they say hi i was in raiders of the lost ark <laughs> and yeah. in the dub they they don't address that at all because that would be stupid yeah so it's like the actors become a villain which which is interesting when you think about it um especially in the context context of something like three you know which i think was still a bit bigger in scope they still try to go abroad they still have that sort of international feel, but it, you guys really touched on the darkness of of four, and I think that really stands out for me. Uh, particularly some of the stuff they do with Baldy Jr. and I, I know Sylvia, you know, gets stomped around in a couple scenes, and kudos to her. And of course, the very famous Carl Mach on fire, which you guys pointed out, and you wonder why he has no hair. So there you go. <laughs> but the stuff they were doing with Baldy Jr. I mean, you can obviously tell that he's not in any great in any great danger but still it's a kid 
It, it, it's fictional peril in a series where you don't uh, expect things to be on the line as much as they are in pot form. Yeah. Um, and I do remember, like, in I think it was three or, or maybe two, you know, one of the scenes where they made him cry, and it's a little baby, you know, very cl- clearly crying on camera. You wonder what they did. One where they kind of like just throw him on the sofa. Yeah, that was free. It's good that he's not in the next film. Because I don't know what they would have done with it. And, and neither is Sylvia. She's not in the fifth one. But uh, was it still, you know, somewhat fun to have a different tint to it, a different, um, you know, the darkness and somewhat violent uh, edge? Or did that clash with the light mood in, in the case of four, you think? For me, it clashed with what I'd come to know the series to be in the first three, I think. It was interesting for them to try and take it in a different direction didn't quite work as well for me though personally for what I want kind of out of the series seeing the characters kind of in a pretty much continuous peril um, for a big portion of the movie was a bit of a downer for me Um, I'd rather see them being a bit more clever a bit more heroic they seem to have pushed away from the sort of James James Bondian or Mission Impossible kind of feel that was set up early movies and that continues when we get into the fifth film yeah i mean they, they were trying to breathe new life into it i suppose but it, it is a departure that uh, can be distressing uh, sometimes as uh, someone said on facebook yeah it's just uh, distressing i guess is the word to see this character these characters being terrorized for for real in a fictional sense you know as you said sylvia chang being stomped around and protecting her kid i mean it it, it brings you know, to have the da 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 and that in the same movie feels for this series not quite clicking. Very much watchable, but it is the fourth one in ranking for me. It, I, I don't think it can ever climb past three, not nowadays anyway. Back in the day, I think it could, but I, I have a f- greater fondness for three um, based on our prior discussion of it. Uh, okay, that's it. Any other notes from four? Not really. I mean, again, it. it does call into question, you know, because they throw, you guys mentioned Salia in there and sort of, again, positioning King Kong as kind of this James Bond character who, you know, if you remember in the early films, he goes gaga for girls. Whenever there's a girl in the room, he kind of, you know, they use that against him. He kind of loses his sensibilities. They, They move away from that characterization a little bit. And here it's kind of, you know, she's following him around, calling him, you know, Logong or hubby. All the time, and um, you know, I like seeing her on screen, and it, you know, it was a it was a quirky performance from her. It just again, a lot of it felt like they moved away from established characterizations of the characters early on, and for me, that's what I came to know and love. Which is interesting because when I came to the series, I actually saw five first um, in the cinema, um, and I would only later be able to go back and watch watch them in order. And so five was my first exposure. I mean, it's what we'll talk about. It's kind of weird because especially when you see like the characters putting on masks of, um, you know, King Kong and um, and Baldy and you're not really sure what's going on because you haven't seen the others. It's kind of, (laughs) you know, weird to figure things out. Not only are they bad masks, but you have no idea why why in context it would trigger the plot. uh... It would, I suppose. Uh, well, we, we can lead into your quick opinion of five, therefore. So uh, you, you, you have the floor still. Uh, what do you think is short of the last one? Yeah, again, my least favorite of the series. I don't think it really holds up well for the era or in contrast to the earlier films. It does 
have some good segments to it. Again, we've got um, Lau Ka Lung is the director here, one of my favorite Hong Kong film directors of all time. And he has elements that come through here, but there are other elements which I think are perhaps not his forte, not in his wheelhouse. Some of the car scenes I'll talk about, for example, um, and some of the other things which I think just kind of fall a little bit flat. And again, this one goes a bit further again with the theme of putting the characters in peril rather than having them be these kind of um, sort of aces, you know, really good at what they do, Mission Impossible kind of stuff. We lose Sylvia altogether. We lose Baldy Jr. Um, as some of the comic relief. That gets replaced by Nina Lee, who I'll talk a little bit more about later. Well, they, they get repla- it gets replaced by boobs. And that's not her, her fault. That's the makers uh, going for... Uh that kind of joke because that's how they see her boobs unfortunately that's the that's a kid that's like the second movie Lao Galang has made where Nina Leachy is uh, either beaten or uh, they play the jokes uh, offered that way so yeah she gets a lot of abuse in the film yeah I suppose so but, uh, not akin to Tiger on Beat of course uh, that was worse. Uh, anyway, uh, for me, I, it is the weakest entry in the series for me as well. I think uh, the banter between uh, Sam Hoy and Carl Macca, it's, it's not as fresh anymore. It feels like it's going on repeat. Uh, there's no fresh wave of uh, their fun interaction this fifth time around. Uh, and the new faces, they're, they're given very little to do, unfortunately. You you would think that Leslie Chung and Nina Lee Chi is going to be, you know, at least quite okay. But I, I don't think they're given much to do, especially Leslie. I think he's very anonymous throughout the movie, unfortunately, because I'm a great fan of Leslie. Uh, they all admirably perform well um, in terms of action direction, which is this movie's uh, main difference versus one through four. It's a lot more fight action heavy. Not surprising, considering the director, as you said. But And a lot of the stunts are fun. Uh, a lot of the stuntmen get um, put through some decent... Uh, uh, they, they, there's some decent falls and what have you even that aspect of fight action doesn't get uh, isn't as sharp as you would think coming from a Lao Galang movie and I'll, I'll, I'll give you my take on why that is the audience was still there Paul the audience appeal was still strong for uh, for the fifth one decent decent box office in the 20 million dollar hong kong million dollar range so you wonder if a six was on the cards or this was the time when cinema city ran into their financial troubles uh, getting flops uh, getting flops uh, on the markets and stuff so it, you know go, going by gut feeling do, do you think they would have uh, squeezed out a six if it had not been for flops like undeclared war and things like that well it's hard to say this was Released in the Chinese New Year market time frame, um, so it's expected it was expected to be a big film uh, based on that. You know, just like over here, Christmas releases and summer releases are expected to be big money generators. But I think it's the least performing of the five films. I, I think would... so, a few million less, but still fairly strong considering the fifth one. Um, yeah. You know. Um, so, but because you, you think about like the third film did, I think Hong Kong 29 million back in 84, the first film doing 26 back in 82, those are pre-inflation numbers. So probably not performing as well as they had hoped. I kind of get the feeling that maybe what they wanted to do was continue on with Leslie taking up the key role, but there's a thematic problem here with this film that I think perhaps 
sidelined it altogether. Uh, it, it's, it moves away from the international to a more China-centric thing because you've got the storyline involving the Terracotta Warriors. You have um, Conan Lee coming in as China's Rambo, um, as this you know officer coming to try and recover the stolen goods. And there's a whole segment that we'll get to taking place in the mainland, which is interesting. There's also a final thing at the end. It's kind of got a very pro everything's okay, you know, China is, is good. And then when is this film done? It's done early 1989. And just a few months later, you're going to have Tiananmen. And that's going to throw a lot of this sentiment right out the window. So I'm not saying that's the reason why you didn't get another film, but I think that might have been one factor in it, that they just decided, well, didn't perform that well. Where some of the themes we were playing with, you know, we... we they're just not there anymore. Yeah, I mean, looking at Undeclared War, that was Cinema City expanding internationally in a different way, and it didn't work out. I think it was the year after, and uh, I think they had another flop on their hands. I think maybe the the uh, Choi Hak movie uh, he produced, it, the, the Raid, they might not have performed uh, well as such either. Fairly big budget movie, so there were a string of flops there, just like DMB had a string of flops that sank the company. Um, Early 90s as well. So who knows? And uh, we had to wait until 1997 where when someone decided in post-production that we had made an Aces Go Places movie. <laughs> Look how well that turned out. I mean, uh, full disclosure, um, it seemed universally hated. I did not like it at all, 97 Aces Go Places. Did, uh, did you ever sit down with it um, at, at some point? once and i never felt the need to watch it again yeah certainly that's hard to disagree with Uh, the only international location i guess to go to if they went to uh, thailand but it's certainly set in thailand at the beginning and uh, they're trying to establish that uh, there's going to be conflict um, between uh, longtime friends they're they're not in sync anymore they go their separate ways but there, there was a lot of confusion for me because they essentially okay they explain it. But essentially, it looks like they're now in the kidnapping business, which threw me off a little bit. Why are they kidnapping this beautiful girl from 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 her uh, from her wedding to boot? And yes, it is explained. And uh, that's the conflict that one wants to keep the money, I suppose, and uh, give her to the person who hired them and one doesn't. But it threw me off a little bit. I, I, want, I don't want these characters to stray into... These, these different moral territories but then again that argument doesn't hold water as such because Sam ultimately was a, he was a thief you know from the get-go in the first movie so um, one should not focus as much on that I suppose uh, and just move on from it but I, I, I wouldn't say that the conflict set up is uh, the gateway into neither dramatic territory or comedic gold territory as such. I didn't particularly care about this uh, conflict that the best friends are now not best friends uh, as such. Uh, not a series to hinge on drama, but I like when these characters get along and I like when Sam Hoy makes uh, a fool out of Carl Macca When and, and I know we discussed that you, you didn't particularly like that they made Carl Macca more stupid as, as the series went on, but I, I still find that funny, and there, there are glimpses of that here where he's very, very stupid. <laughs> you know, the scene in the ice, uh, uh, the ice locker, and all of that. But uh, um, any thoughts on that? If, if that was an effective um, jumping-off point that established conflict, and and then we go. Well, the the rationale here is that 
King Kong has retired. He's become a bad financial planner, basically. And Carl Macca, I guess he's quit the police force and he's like in debt or something to a lot of different groups. They never really delve too deep into it. They just give brief lift service that his wife and kid are now emigrated and, and living in Canada. So the, the fact that he's no longer a police officer and having that kind of polar opposite rivalry, they've kind of stripped all that away now. Mm. And it's just like, okay, they're just two kind of bitter partners arguing back and forth. But I did think it was interesting that they decided to put Karl Maka on ice this time rather than on fire. Yep, I guess polar polar opposites, uh, indeed. And uh, and I and I bet that wasn't even uh, remotely uh, remotely cold. That uh, I bet it was a smart set that they that they built uh, rather than, or maybe Carl Mackey was like, I'm I'm the producer, I go hardcore, so let's get ice in here. And it is interesting that they do kind of re- reflect back on I think the original movie with the villain as uh, White Glove. It's a different actor. And he's kind of gone full Bond villain now. He's changed his white glove into this like fake cat. Oh, that was that was. I I, I gotta say, I thought the movie was gonna. I, I thought this reeked of promise. I didn't see it at first that because he he was he was obviously doing the Blofeld thing of uh, stroking his yep. cat. And then as a beat or two in, wait a minute, that's a glove. And he doesn't abandon that uh, glove throughout the movie. That's what he needs to have by his side. Some kind of weird OCD bizarre thing. And I thought the movie was going to paint this bizarre, satirical, almost airplane spoof uh, picture of uh, the James Bond genre, if you will. But it was freaky because I didn't see it. And all of a sudden, uh, it's a toy. And it kind of freaked me out a little bit uh, that white glove is now white pussy essentially i think it would have worked better if they tried to keep it going a bit longer I, I i felt they revealed that a little bit too early but you know nonetheless at least he commits to it throughout the rest of the film brad kerner is the um is the western actor who uh, acts uh, well he doesn't seem like he's an actor but he's going for it he wants he wants that sword he wants that sword indeed and we get to hear his english voice in the um in the Cantonese language track too, which is always a bonus, so we can enjoy the ludicrous nature of it all. And that bizarre tone, you know, I thought it was going to lead into the fact that when Leslie and Nina pose with the masks of King Kong and uh, Baldy, those very bad masks. I mean, they don't look convincing at all. I thought, is Lau Galong and crew and writers just completely making a parody of the genre that you got the white pussy villain got the bad masks and and that that's our stance on humor here but i I don't know if it is or or it was and then therefore you might think that that plot point is not very well executed because those masks look incredibly bad no one would be fooled to think those are human faces unless they were cut off human faces right like it's a Texas Chainsaw Massacre style we did we took their faces they're really good they're really going dark this time yeah so it's a little bit um a little bit strange. I mean, it, it was cool to see these. I mean, you didn't see it see it this way the first time around, but now that you've seen one through five, it's cool that they went for a new generation of stars. I suppose I like Nina Ricci, um, even though they used her in a rather cheap way uh, here and certainly in other movies. And, and Leslie, we, we of course love. So there, there, there's there's uh, opportunity there. But uh, how did you think they used uh, the duo, uh, Leslie and Nina, ultimately? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because Leslie at this point was really rocketing up 
he wasn't quite there yet in terms of some of his appeal from, I think, like Wong Kar Wai films and whatnot. But he'd already done Chinese Ghost Story. And he was a, a well-known, yeah, he was a well-known face now. So for them to kind of put him in, part of me, again, thinks that's their their plan was to have him maybe continue on um, with the series. Um, but poor Nina Lee, she gets so much abuse. She gets kicked in the groin at one point. They talk about uh, feeding her to the sharks. And then there's a gag about, oh, sharks don't breastfeed. Um, they <laughs> shoot her through a cannon. And she, you know, is supposed to go over the fence, but she ends up hitting the fence. And of course, there's an outline of her and her breasts in the fence. So, you know, just like Roadrunner, Wally Coyote, Coyote stuff, waka waka. Which isn't too bad because they combine it with when Leslie gets shot out of the cannon. That that's ludicrous shot across the water or the or whatever it was, and he lands perfectly in in the house on the other side, like it was planned mathematically. And yeah. that, that that was part of the like that that promising ludicrous tone. So even that Nina Lee boop joke that you just explained, that could be part of that tone. But they don't really cement that tone very well, and they they it's not uh, a through line that uh, the movie uh, chooses and uh, comes out as winning because of it. Uh, uh, not even when they introduce Conan as Chinese Rambo, it doesn't really everything doesn't land. Is my point, I think. Yeah, but I give kudos to Nina Lee, um, who would also, for those who don't know, would become retire and become Mrs. Jet Lee. Still is right. Yeah, I think I believe so. She, um, you know, she really goes for what she can do in terms of some of the action and, and set pieces, and and she's game for it. It's unfortunate that a lot of the time she gets in the roles that she got, she was kind of treated like a lesser Amy Yip from Amy Yip's comedies. You know, where it's a lot of gags about her physique more than anything but i did think i do think she has a good sense of comedy especially if you look at stuff like um the fun the luck of the tycoon and things she could she could pull comedy really well and here she's being asked to do some comedy and some action throughout and i think she handles it with um with both skill and grace at times so for uh game is a good word for it and i'm sure she was aware of what jokes surrounding her and directed towards her would play with the audience i heard somewhere she she's china uh, she's mainland chinese right yeah i think she's from shanghai and i think that was some filmmakers thought that if we make fun of that and treat her bad in movies in our hong kong movies audiences will eat that up and i i've heard experts talk of that 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 was as bad as that sounds that was a direction for some productions here and there like feature her and make these jokes, and that's going to be gold. And, and you know, you can look at um, actresses like Lydia Shum, Fei Fei, or, or Sandra M, mm, who were able to kind of say, "All right, this is what they're going. They want to do with me. I can either be hurt by that, or I can embrace it and take it on and make a lot of money and you know win through the system." And uh, and and I do enjoy. Her. I mean, she she she's in Stone Age Warriors with. Uh, with um, Fancy Wong and um, Elaine Loy and uh, running away from some <laughs> some wild uh, African animals, if you will. Uh, and uh, she's uh, mistaken for a prostitute, I think, in Twin Dragons. So she, even in the beginning 90s, she's, uh, she's uh, even for charity, <laughs> essentially. She's uh, made to look uh, like this, I suppose. Uh, uh, any brief thoughts on how they use uh, Conan Lee? Because um, he, he was a star that I think... Uh, 
burn some bridges along the way thanks to ego um uh, but certainly debuted made debut and um, made a debut that was very well received ninja in the dragon's den and i thought he worked well with giant fat in tiger on beat um uh, directed by lao garland as well but uh, uh any any standout points for conan being the you know the chinese rambo plus a little bit of an action presence here yeah i mean he's kind of doing his thing that he gained some renown for being big and bulky and muscular and, and flexing on camera. And that works well. You know, the, the, the line Chinese Rambo gets, I think, a good laugh even today. Is it a better joke in Chinese, you think, or is it essentially the same? I, I think it's pretty much, it, it comes across as the same. Um, I don't think that, I mean, because the, the main scene that stands out for me is like later when he's actually exercising with the group. You know, and he's kind of like, you know, you're trying to get them motivated and, and helping them get to where they need to be um, to do things. I, I think they could have used him a little bit more. I think um, he gets underutilized for the most part in this film. Yeah, it comes and goes a little, little bit. But I think the movie achieves quite a f- good flow. Uh, the best flow of the movie actually is so uh, from the time when there's the big office fight and the stunts. And that then leads to Sam Hoy being picked up. But while he's in the phone booth and all of that, then the the office fight is pretty good in terms of what Conan does, but also the stuntmen do uh, a lot of fairly expert falls and uh, those scenarios, those three four um, scenarios that last for about ten minutes, they they flow well into each other. They change they change geography and that's the better uh, better pace section of the movie. And uh, it's always uh, watchable to see stuntmen whether they fall, you know, from <laughs> great heights or they're in this office and there's not a whole lot of spaces to work with, but they work those quite well and it looks, uh, you know, very professional. So that's the different tint in Aces Go Places 5 versus the other ones. I think that they have Lao Galang as director, Lao Ga Wing, his brother, is listed as action director, even though I'm sure his, his uh, other brother, his directing brother, had a thing or two to say about action too and that's the different tint to this movie that makes it a little bit more unique there's more of these type of stunts and certainly fight action towards the back end so it, it it's the thing that makes it unique versus the other ones and it even uses the cost a little bit more as i'm sure we'll talk of but uh, uh within all of it all of this uh, I, I i got this sort of disheartening confirmation that they're not going to ride this wave of uh, Sam Hoy's persona being um, weak for the ladies you know this time he's simply not and I always found that so endearing that we got this you know handsome guy a super best guy at everything and his weak point is women but you can play him that way he's not smooth you can play him you can manipulate him and I thought but by having that removed uh, it, 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 it's a role that there for the fifth time around feels a little bit more repetitive and even anonymous in certain uh, sections. So uh, it, the movie is has difficulty finding its prior sharpness, uh, despite that good action scene that starts in the office, goes to the scaffolding, <laughs> the phone booth, uh, the phone booth that takes uh, Sam Hoy um, to a bad guy's lair and all of that. And then we see poor Carl Macca playing Mahjong by himself, which is probably the funniest sight in the movie in terms of oh man he's down on his luck he's playing mahjong by himself and talking to himself too so uh so, so i thought it was the best stretch of the movie um uh, anything you want to say about that was that a highlight uh, that stretch of the movie that featured those different scenarios 
Um, I think for me, I'm a little bit more focused on some of the stuff that they do when they go into China and again, sort of the East versus West fight, fight scene, which we'll talk about in, in a bit. Uh, it's interesting that you do point out kind of how far removed Sam Hoy's character is as King Kong from the earlier establishment. Part of me, as I was watching this again, I was thinking this really feels much more like a Jackie Chan film. And you could very easily have put Jackie Chan in as Sam Hoy and the effect kind of would have been the same because it, it, he doesn't really feel like King Kong here. He, you know, the stuff we see in the early films, the gadgets him he uses, all the techno toys and all that stuff that builds really up to a pinnacle point in the third film. Um, we don't get any of that here anymore. So we get we get a Lego phone and that's it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's about it. Um, so, yeah, it's just a shame that it feels so interchangeable. I mean, it's not that it's a bad film. It's got quality. It's got production value thrown in there, mm-hmm. much like you would see for a big action or a big Jackie Chan film for the era. It's got, you know, the stars, the cameos, all of that going for it. It just really feels like they decided to go for that rather than sticking to the established universe. The stunt focus that is there in terms of vehicular stunts, it's it obviously it's professionally made, but I didn't it didn't spike in terms of excitement here where we get bike stunts or when they uh, there's a car ch- chase where the car is driving on two wheels and the banter between characters as they are doing it. I didn't think that was new and exciting anymore. It was um, I had a little bit of a deja vu, but not in a good sense. You know, I. I I've seen this and it's not new enough anymore. For yeah. Me. And sadly, it's not done very well either. Um, when you think of, you know, Lao Kao Lang in action, you tend to think of the martial arts segments, not the car stunt work. And I think here that really shows because there's a great bit where the four of them are in this small car. It's a close up shot of the four of them. They're arguing. And I think Carl Mack is trying to drive and they're fighting at the same time, not really fighting, but kind of like slapping around each other. As you're watching the shot, if you've got a lot of cinema experience or watched a lot of movies or behind the scenes, you're thinking, okay, this is, you know, they're being pulled by a crew car, right? And it's just, you know, they're not in any danger at all. It's just the cameras there close up on them. But then they pull back and you see, no, there's no crew car. There's nothing guiding that car. It's Carl Macca at the wheel, turning away from the wheel at times. I'm a producer. Carl Macca driving a car on fire or something. Yeah, I don't know if they had the car on remote control or how they did it. But for that era, that's a pretty that was a pretty great bit that made me go, wait a minute. Wow. OK, I don't know how they did that now. But then it's followed by a very sort of typical car goes up on its side on two wheels. But the camera work is really badly framed because you can actually see the shadow of the railing system on the other side of the car that's keeping it propped up as they go for this sort of long shot. Then they do a reverse shot, and very briefly you can kind of see, again, the equipment on the underside of it that they're kind of using. It's fine. It's not really supposed to be a super action spectacle for the film, but it does feel a little bit um, novice by design. It was better, you know, in the earlier movies. And, you know, you would think technically this movie would be a little bit sharper so many years after the original movie uh, so so i feel, uh, very much agree so it, it didn't it, it didn't uh, spike my interest as such i think uh, the, the funnier scene in terms of banter and what have you is uh, 
and a scene that is a reprisal of sorts, but actually work. It, you remember in the first movie, there's a seesaw type of scene at a bus terminal with Carl uh, Mack and Sam Hoy on each end of the seesaw and uh, trying not to be hung. And here they do um, the same, not the same thing. Uh, they have Leslie Chung and Nina Lee on uh, on a plank and uh, they're trying to get information from them that way. And I thought, and, and there's apparently piranhas in Carl um, Mack's fish farm. I don't know if that's plausible or not but the piranhas are it's a cinematic thing that uh, they're gonna chow and chomp down on you if you fall into it and i think that scene was um, a little sign of uh, they're achieving a flow in terms of banter between characters and it's a little scenario too and it's a scenario that the characters haven't fought through baldy and king kong they haven't really fought fought it through because at the end they want to release Nina Lee and uh, Leslie Chung and they, they're not sure how they're going to go about it and I, I thought that was um, a little sign of uh, they're, they're nailing a few beats here but it, it's it's a few beats out of a so-so movie so uh, that obviously isn't good enough in the long run but uh, a little high, a little comedic highlight for me I think Yeah some good, good hijinks and an interesting technical idea I am curious uh, because there's no way those, those are piranha the fish farms that they have out there are actually out in the ocean and as i understand it i think piranha are freshwater fish right and the fish that they actually use because there's a shot where i think a fish is on sam samway's toe or something it's a really long big fish um, but i was curious how they actually did that because there are points where i think leslie chung's feet kind of dip in the water and suddenly there's a frenzy of activity i'm wondering did they have guys underwater just splashing or what would they, they they do to sort of get that frenzy going that was a kind of an interesting technical point and it was an interesting gag all all around i think that was one of the better executed moments and also by the way the, the my, my favorite uh call is really stupid moment is when they're locked in the ice locker and they're, they're trying to get the uh, warm coat uh, to warm and uh, but they they can't wear the warm coat at the same time so they have to fight each other over it and sam hits kolmaki in the head he turns around who was that that hit me and i was like yeah paul was right they are making <laughs> him so so stupid but it was a reminder of uh things that were and i wasn't displeased but they're, they're pushing it because how has he gone so senile <laughs> over, the, over the course of those years that he's gonna fall for that gag yeah, that's what happens when they set you on fire for so long. I suppose so, yeah. The mainland section, I I don't know if it's a, a way too local comedic section for it to work fairly in the West. I didn't quite understand it, and subsequently I didn't understand more than just the fight action, I suppose. So, And I guess it comes down to what, what you explained, that the movie say, seems to take more of a pro-China stance, but... I don't really have any other notes on that, but how did you think that worked? Could you identify a little bit more what they were aiming for comedically? Well, it was a couple things. I think first it was, by the end, it was kind of going for this, uh, everything's going to be okay, China's not so bad, as we've all heard kind of a thing. It is a bit of a callback to Ringo Lam, of course, because it's a prison sequence, and you have Roy Chung there as sort of the head guard, they the gang gets together and sings the theme song from uh from prison on fire together oh, really? wow. 
and they don't it's not the, the actual song that Maria Cordero sings but she does show up in the cameo uh, at one point so um, there's that but yeah it's, when they're together they're singing and you hear some prisoners singing that same song uh, just a bit of it yeah, I, I started to feel like I'm not understanding thoroughly where they're going here it seems like by the end I might have understood the point but within it it seems like a whole bunch of wackiness including by Danny Lee that I didn't firmly understand but did you pick up on any local comedic touches and uh, was it a winning sequence at all for you there's a lot that's playing with some local instituality that if you haven't seen the prison on fire film not familiar with rainbow land work um, that's going to be lost but I think the idea that they're still trying to play off that you know China's big and scary but it's kind of a bluff kind of thing that by the end they end up kind of going out on a note of that we're all going to be able to get along and unfortunately that dissolves a few months later and in terms of um, I mean for me my, my nose kind of start to run out there but in terms of this section in China and certainly the ending this signals that Lao Gaolong and, and the action director Lao Gaoing, they want to include the cost as much as possible for the fight action and the weapons action and have them perform on camera without noticeable doubling or extensive doubling which is a double-edged well excuse the pun double-edged sword <laughs> because uh, obviously we get some sword fights here because it's admirable what they do participate in but it comes at the expense of the action quality itself because Lao Galang had transitioned to modern action quite well it, at least in terms of Tiger on Beat and there's some good stuff in Tiger on the Beat too but the movie isn't as good and by including the cost as much as he did here it therefore comes off as a bit more slightly more slower and sluggish or even fairly more slower and sluggish because they're not working with the martial arts experts they they are used to whether in these Shaw Brothers movies so certainly when using Conan Lee in Tiger on Beat they had the martial arts uh, sort of expertise in place and Chai Fat's character in that in that movie he was leaning more towards the the funny gun-toting hero but I think again as admirable as the cast perform here it doesn't reach those levels that you would expect out of a Lao Galang movie and if they had it could have saved the movie a little bit but as it stands now I don't think much of the action stands out other than in bursts here and there as Carl Macchia and the likes uh, are you know both avoiding weapons maybe using weapons in certain cases and that's a little bit of a disappointment considering that there is a goodwill in terms of how Lao Galang and his brother transferred to making modern action movies so competent very much competent and even watchable and this is this movie's little um, unique tint as I said but ultimately a little disappointing because um, in in my perhaps naive way I expect Lao Galang action and a, and a movie by him to be a little bit more rousing in terms of action you know and yet it's interesting because there's the there's a fight sequence um just past the midway point I think where Conan Lee's two assistants who are these skilled martial arts female fighters he asks one of them um, she's using a a Chinese longsword to take on uh, the crew who are using sort of uh, French foils uh, fencing weapons and he's like okay if you guys 
you know, because he wants them to train with traditional Chinese weapons. There's this whole thing like, well, we can't use guns because guns will break the terracotta warriors. And they're like, no, you need to get with the times, dude. These, you know, these things are archaic. They're, you know, we don't need to learn these things. So there's this whole sort of East versus West um, pair off, which is interesting. I mean, it's an interesting uh, segment. And this is something he's done before, you know, sort of different pairings of martial arts. You go back to like legendary weapons of China or heroes of the East. And it's an idea he's played with. And he's never really taken the position that uh, China weapons are the best. He's always, to me, come across as if it works, it's good, regardless of where it comes from. And he, and even sometimes he's taken a non-violent stance within all of this. Remember heroes of the East, I don't think anyone gets killed because that that's not the intent of it all. So here it's interesting that... Um, it's it's weird because it's like many against one. She's using a longsword, but she clearly loses. I mean, if they're really just going for, you know, the idea of competition or even, you know, getting wounded, she loses uh, flat out early on in a couple places. But they, you know, kind of keep fighting. What's the statement he's trying to make here um, with, with this whole sequence? Maybe he's positioning himself as... I, I must transition, you know, I need to go mm-hmm. and flow with times, but I'm not abandoning abandoning tradition. Like the, these things come come and go, uh, traditional filmmaking, if you will, and traditional martial artistry, that comes and goes. And now we're leaning more towards, you know, the gun generation, if you want to, if you want to simplify it. Um, so because mm-hmm. I, I picked up on that too, that he's uh, either very sad that this transition is happening, but on the other hand, he had made uh, those tiger movies and uh, seemed quite comfortable uh, mixing and matching uh, action tactics in those ones. Yeah, and I think for me that's one of the more interesting choreographed sequences. Um, and and like you said, he's dealing with you know actors who are not. I mean, Sam's you know he's done Swordsman, he did uh, Dragon from Russia. He can pull off action. He's not you know, what we would consider like a Jet Li or Donnie Yen level martial artist. But I think he can be shown doing action on screen and and have it be believable. Um, You also have Leslie and Nina Lee and Carl Macca thrown in the mix. So given that, I'm okay with the sequence. It's not as exciting or dynamic, of course, as if you go back and look at, you know, Gordon Liu or some of the, you know, people he worked with early on who are trained and what they can do on screen. And and, and to be fair, if I'm being honest, it is... The action, hi- the action highlights are here. They are the better parts of the movie uh, because I admire the cast for being able to take part in so much and visibly so without clever or even not so clever doubling. It's uh, it's just my... God, I wish this was a little bit of a, another notch on Lau Galang's belt uh, in terms of I made another good uh, transitional piece in terms of modern action, but uh, but it isn't up there with Tiger on Beat or anything. Yeah, so it's me merely kind of may, maybe looking at it from the wrong sort sort of standard there because uh, they, they they are very very admirably uh, put to use here. I think. Yeah, and I mean there are a couple of good really by the end the sort of the, the big showdown in this warehouse. Everything happens in a warehouse, right? There's a really a couple good pair offs. Carl Maka ends up fighting against uh, Deborah Grant in a sequence that's really well done, I think. And it's got comedy thrown in there, but it's got some, you know, some decent action. And Mark Hoden, who plays one of the thugs, he actually takes a pretty big fall onto a crate that 
I don't think you would have gotten away with in a in a Hollywood film, but it's like one of those things you look at and they go, "We want you to fall from here onto that thing and just do it." Well, and well, he did well it. he'd worked with Sam. I remember an interview with um, with Mark yeah, where he talked of um, making Skinny Tiger, Fatty Dragon, where Samuel just flat out said, "I'm gonna, I, I'm gonna, and I wanna hit you in the face." And okay, it'll, I know it will look the best. In terms of cinema, because Samo is the man, so uh, full contact it is. I think that, in all honesty, I think that was a light today for for Mark that the fall you're yeah. talking of. <laughs> um, so you know, you do get moments like that in there that are still, when we think of Hong Kong cinema and and this era, they're they're still going for it. It may not always come across as ultimately memorable um, compared with other things but it's still there yeah i agree i agree very much and uh, if you want to see it in, in, in my personal opinion that is what to look for i think um, uh, this time around uh, those are the highlights and uh, the direction you, you can appreciate that this movie takes that direction because it had not been present as such before so it, it's um I think it makes it requisite, especially if you made it one through four and still find all of this likable to a degree, then you should not, by any means, skip uh, Terracotta Hit. Um, My final note is that I've never seen this um, English dubbed. It was not released in the Mad Mission Anchor Bay box set. They only have one through four. So that might not have been dubbed by Atlas in that case. It was there prints and presumably their dubbing but i have seen footage of this movie being dubbed if my memory is not mistaken paul fonarov had a show on hong kong tv for i don't know how many years but for a while and he went uh, behind the scenes on movies i've seen behind the scenes uh, spotlights on fong sayok and seeing behind the scenes spotlights on i think it was paul fonarov's program but in any case i've seen a dubbing feature at that had the westerners dubbing aces go places five i'm gonna take a chance here i think i might have seen uh, western actor pierre tremblay being one of the dubbers for this or one of the dubbers for the killer i'm not sure because i've, I've seen footage of that being dubbed into english in hong kong as well so um but um that that, that will be in the, avail- in the availability section that there is no at least readily available dubbed version of uh, aces got places five as therefore mad mission five so I just wanted to throw that out there. But that, that's otherwise the end of my notes. So uh, what else do you want to say about the terracotta hit before we bid adieu to, to Aces Go Places? Yeah, no, it's not a great film for the series. It's an okay film for the era. And if you're a completionist, you know, just watch it and try to glean from it what you can. Yeah, that's very much fair. And um, as for availability, a little bit of a repeat of uh, what we've said before. But this is a Fortune Star title in Hong Kong. And they have put out the series on blu-ray one through five and in a blu-ray box set as well this is probably an upscale from the standard definition dvd versions i've got that dvd box set as for the dvd box set if you can still find it uh, that looks good but it contains um, you know the blu-ray box set contains remixes only the dvd set says it has original mono for all the movies there which is not true i think one and two have original mono options but the rest of them have downscaled versions of the new dolby remixes uh, which they're not the worst that fortune star have produced but they are distracting but listening to the mono tracks is actually not a good option because three through five that 2.0 option have these uh, 
either delayed sound effects or they've layered in sound effects twice. So essentially, if someone gets, you know, hit once, you hear it instead, which is a strange anomaly. And of course, that isn't present on the 5.1 version of the track. So Hong Kong quality control for you, a little heads up. I've seen these movies multiple times, so I've I've been able to get through them. It's not the worst that I've heard, but uh, beware that um, these are not technically excellent or anything. So if you find the DVD box set out there, then, then go for a reasonable uh, price <laughs> so uh, but, but but only for uh, su- such foley obviously not for dialogue or anything but only for such uh, foley so who knows how that happened but uh, i'm not surprised because the quality control over at fortune star and whoever they work with it's not sharp at all times it's actually not sharp at all <laughs> i've had run-ins with them personally and uh, and i have stuff to complain with uh, complain about um, still so that's why they target you on YouTube. Yes, you complained about our down mixes. We paid some good, good folks, tremendous folks, the best, to do this stuff. But uh, there it is. But uh, we are going to take another musical break because uh, why shouldn't you play music when you uh, review so close from 2002? Because it uh, chooses a piece of music and does so, uh, writes that wave of that particular music choice throughout the movie. So why not play a little bit of uh, that piece of music and we'll identify it as best we can after a break as we talk so close from 2002. Why do birds suddenly appear Every time you are near Just like me And welcome back. And after humming along to that uh, theme song, so to say, to So Close from 2002, let's uh, review it. And plot from the Love HK film review of the film. Uh, Shu Kei and Vicky Shao are respectively sisters Lin and Sue, who are high-tech assassins with an appropriately high price tag. They possess a secret weapon, a satellite surveillance system called World Panorama, which was developed, developed by their late father. I think uh, Bruce Wayne had this tech in one of the Batman movies not so long ago, right? In the, in the Dark Knight. Didn't he have access to to everyone, everyone at least in Gotham City? Yes, except with his, it was um, cell phones. It wasn't just like remote cameras. Right, exactly. Anyway, as for the World Panorama system, it allows them to tap into any closed-circuit camera system worldwide as well as decorate their home with lots of cool-looking flat panel Monitors. This is Koso at his best, plot-wise here. Uh, unfortunately, their latest job has its share of issue- issues. Evil bastard Mr. Chow, played by Derek Wan, hired the girls to off his brother, but wants to save his cash by taking them out too. Also, unreasonably tough forensics cop Hong, played by Karen Mock, is on their tail, which leads to an unconvincing romantic subplot between she and Sue. Again, this is Koso and not my opinion. There's heterosexual romance too. Lin, Shuke's character, is reunited with old flame Yen, played by Korean actor Song Seong Hyun, which reawakens her womanly passions, or something like that. She decides she wants out of the game, but things aren't that easy. Sue wants in on the field action, which Lin has restricted her from being part of. She doesn't want her sister immersed in blood as she has, and wants a better life for her. However, with the forces of good and evil closing in, uh, this uh, leaves uh, life. Uh, this uh, makes life quite difficult. 
So that's the plot. Uh, and as for my uh, quick opinion, it, it's it's certainly not heroic bloodshed and girls with guns for a new generation, like a gem in that regard. And, but it's, uh, uh, I'd say, a good time where Kor Jung gets uh, quite an, um, you know, he provides like like a volume of action. He inserts that into the piece. He uses his um, ladies at hand to a large degree without obvious uh, doubling. The doubling is quite clever. It's a bit floaty and fake action-wise sometimes, uh, but it's done with style and finesse. Um, the storylines and drama surrounding all of this, though, that's flat. So there's no dramatic impact making this, obviously, no, uh, you know, John Woo for the new millennium or anything. But it's quite alright. I think it's um, it's quite fun, even at the two-hour length that we're dealing with here. So I'll, I'll, I'll give it a little bit of a thumbs up. So uh, what do you think of uh, So Close? Yeah, so close, but yet so far, it's um this film bombed big time. Unfortunately, I mean, if you look at the box office numbers, it didn't even break Hong Kong one million Jeez. at the time. Yeah, we just got done talking about uh, a film, you know, Aces Co Places Five, which was the worst of the series, which made twenty million. So use that as a point of comparison. I wish we were Aces Co Places Five. <laughs> that, that's what Corey said. I'm sure. <laughs> So, yeah, I mean, it it feels like it's set up to be this kind of new generation Charlie's Angels for Asia, but then it kind of diverges away from that towards the final act and moves more into sort of the killer territory, I would say. It's got some moments, but I think it, um, you know, it doesn't work in in quite a few places. And some of that's just the two-dimensional characterization of things, like the villains and things. Yeah, I mean, if I'm being honest... It, it, it is the action that carries it uh, in, in between the stuff uh, the in between stuff it's it's nothing to write home about at all actually but surprisingly for you know action wise there's a lot of watchable quality here that manages to fill 110 minutes uh, in my opinion uh, was that the case for you did, did action uh, make any uh, watchable noise if you will i mean it's fine it's a little bit too much of uh, wind in their hair moments a lot of times so like the initial assassination you've got shuke walking in in slow motion very cool and wind machines blowing her hair and she's wearing all white and i think they were a little bit too enamored of the fact that they were going for female assassins and yet they had to glamorize them a little bit well at least not sexualize them that's always a yeah that's also a a step up though they do sexualize them a little bit i mean you've got a, a a scene in the, where they fight in the bathtub and, you know, there's some disrobing going on in sort of a creative fashion. And I mean, yeah, it, it is a fantasy world. This is a movie primarily aimed at men. I, I would agree that. But they, I, I sort of like the tint of the, the, these are impeccable looking assassins rather than sexy assassins. And uh, it seems like it, they don't address it, but it certainly seems like a science fiction movie based on the tech that's being used here, which... Yeah, for the era, it's very science fiction-esque. In the same way, I mean, if you would compare something like a Enemy of the State or what was the one that she had LaBeoufed at, uh, Eagle Eye, right. you know, it's like present day, but there's tech that exists that doesn't really exist, so, yeah. Yeah, and, and also that that leads to the movie's visuals being very noisy and flashy and they're using, no, you know, whooshes as part of scene transitions, so... It, it's not the most 
clever take on uh, filmmaking vision, certainly. But when we get into the movie fast, or uh, it's part desperate imitation of Western Flash, I think. But uh, at least for the second half, Corey uh, Yoon focuses on elements that are closer to home, i.e., uh, action, if you will. But uh, I wouldn't say it's rousing action necessarily. As looking at the opening assassination, where Shuke wires herself, I suppose, jumps up into the ceiling and uh, has. Uh, heels you know uh, there, there's a uh, hidden gadgets in her heels that allows her to uh, attach to the ceiling uses using double guns that way but Corey, you know he executes this it's on screen but it isn't done in a very hard hitting way it's more smooth and floaty and so- sometimes a little bit too too fake because um, uh, the cg isn't uh, isn't very convincing to use a lot of glass uh, that flies around in slow motion as shuke flies about the scene but obviously none of that glass uh, cuts her of course <laughs> she can navigate through, through that glass you know without a scratch i don't know it's it kind of humorous i suppose that that uh, introduction of that these assassins are perfect beyond belief and that's what we're gonna convey here um in a way that, that that that's sort of fun and the, the, it's not the best action sequence of uh, the movie but I, I think it it sets out the fact that we we're not going to go down any dramatic roads a la John or anything because we can't we can't really do John Woo as such but um, uh, the CG is a new millennium thing obviously and it's um, if it looks fakery uh, fake and it's fakery I won't blame you for being taken out of the movie when they n- are not going through real glass as they probably did 10 years earlier or 20 years earlier when making these uh, movies like uh, shit even Corey Yoon repeats a gag from Yes Madam yeah but this time it's not done uh, Michelle Yeoh goes through not real glass but glass nonetheless a uh, physical thing and here uh, Chow Wei uh, or Karen Mok, uh, she doesn't so there's the difference in um, in filmmaking techniques if you will and uh I, I can take it uh, in this movie. I can also leave it um, and would rather have something physical done. But uh, I wasn't infuriated necessarily uh, as such. But uh, is there a problem for you that it is too much fakery going on here and not too much and not enough physical stuff? I, I wouldn't say it's too much because really it's it's limited to the glass sequence. A couple moments in fight sequences, like when she's hanging from the ceiling. This is the era where they hadn't quite gotten the technology down for compositing. So you can tell when they're really doing a lot of compositing because the the scene looks, it's got like a grayish haze over it that looks different from the rest of the cinematography of the film. Mm-hmm. And so you can you can kind of pick up that they were playing with it. They weren't quite there. It was still kind of emerging. But really they just focused on breaking glass i'm very happy because on rewatch you know i kind of put this film out of my mind but you know they hadn't gotten into the point where they're using digital blood effects instead of squibs oh thank god right you're right yeah so here it's like oh at least they've still got the the blood squibs and that you know so that action holds up really well and you know you can kind of overlook the breaking glass and i think during the car chase sequence they're obviously using some cg cop cars and a couple quick scenes but 
they really just fly by like that. So yeah. it's not that distracting compared with some of the stuff that we would get five or ten years later. Yeah, this would have been a 3D movie five, ten years later, and therefore you would have had 3D glass and 3D blood in slow motion all over the place, I guarantee you. Yeah, and, and a slow motion 3D bullet coming at the screen or something. It has elements of, you know, because, because they, they can manipulate... Uh, uh, CCTV cameras as you've seen in a movie with that system and also foresee uh, obviously monitoring it so that they can uh, uh, guide themselves along and it seems like it's the Matrix for a few seconds as Shuke is moving through sections climbing walls in seconds you know yeah. ju- just through camera move to the left and stuff so it's a mixture of James Bond and these are Matrix assassins, but I'll I'll take it into consideration and then I'll uh, drop it from my consciousness quite uh, quickly. Uh, it feels more like experimentation in in the case of this this almost Matrix looking ability that Shu K has. Um, it's kind of fine, and I, and I don't mind that uh, that uh, Derek Wan dies a horrible death because it's all of a sudden gruesome like got boils and crap all over his face as uh, as he dies uh, in the beginning thing there under the dome so it, it's these contrasts that i remember and can find entertaining at the very least uh, uh, just a quick point of point of errata that was uh sex Sal who dies okay gotcha gotcha yeah he was the older brother yeah the, the the song they use as thematic or uh, or the only song they could afford or the only song Chao has on her iPod, if iPod existed in 2002. But uh, I had to look this up, but they, they use, I think it's an original, but but, I, but but I'm not too sure. But it's, uh, I believe, according to research, this is a song called Close to You by The Carpenters. And just to put everything on, on Front Street here, we, we, we said certain elements are certainly two-dimensional and flat, and uh, even good actresses sometimes can't elevate basic material, and uh, Shu Kei is a good actress. Uh, Chao Wei, I'm not sure she had proven herself in terms of uh, taking drama roles. I don't know if Goddess of Mercy was after this or before this, but uh, certainly Shu Kei's romantic relationship with our Korean actor it's days of our live stuff here, and even even the score sounds like ripped straight from that day's episode of Days of Our Lives, and it doesn't do the movie any favors in terms of getting an emotional hook into us that I want out of the game because I'm I'm in love. Like he's flat as a pancake, uh, our Korean actor, and she can't elevate what she's given despite being a multiple awarded actress for her acting by 2002 uh, that is. so I think it's I can't do better of course but I think it's pretty embarrassingly flat to be honest uh, their, their romantic connection isn't felt at all and when they embrace in the manufactured rain and the song is playing it's it's uh, it's stuff that Corian I don't think should pursue and uh, expand on because it isn't in his wheelhouse uh, this type of stuff and uh, he wanted an emotional hook to the movie uh, but couldn't and I think he it could be argued that if he doesn't get that right then is there any point to the second half of the movie that mainly features Chao Wei and Karen Mock and uh, for, for me I, I, I just simply dropped the fact that uh, Okay, the romantic subplot doesn't work. Let's focus on some action instead. And I got some of that delivered to me. But 
certainly as a whole film uh, a fair few sections fail uh, quite hard so anything else you want to add in terms of uh, how it works romantically and dramatically even so i've just looked up the song in the end credits and uh, the song the full title is they long to be and then in brackets close to you and it looks like it's performed by someone called corinne may so it's not the carpenter's version which i guess is the more popular version of that i believe um but that's the one they're using uh, here in the film. Um, in terms of like the, the the use of it, and and again trying to solidify this kind of what would you call it a, a gomance, this girl's romance between Karen Mock and, and Zhao Wei. Is that the urban dictionary term for it? I just made that up. I don't know. Okay, gotcha. Opposite of romance, I don't know. Okay. Um, the i the idea though, I liked some of the playful moments they had on screen like when they're in the music shop and then you know a bit later i just don't think they really got into it enough and maybe like you said it's not corian's strong suit so well well, well at least uh spoilers a little bit but at least it's not a hint it's it's almost conceived this uh this lesbian angle if you will <laughs> you know they, they they do pay it off it's not uh, a little bit of undertow but uh, it, it certainly works better that possible attraction possibly possibly not attraction versus the uk relationship with uh, our korean actor it, it's certainly a little bit and, and i know i sound like a sleaze when saying so i like the lesbian stuff better but it, it is a little bit more playful as you said i think that's a good word for it um, certainly out of the Free ladies, I think Karen Mock looks like she's given the most fun material because she's a little bit of a you know, she's one of the boys almost. Uh, she's uh, a little bit annoying, <laughs> it's she's uh, speaks her mind and uh, plays these games with her, uh, with her partner, talking about like, oh, when did you start masturbating? and just seems to have fun. And uh, it's the more interesting character to follow because she has no filter it seems like. And I, I really like Karen's uh, attitude uh, displayed uh, throughout all of this. It's not classic material, but she doesn't seem shy about putting forth this uh, this attitude. They give her a little um, gratuitous, let's watch Karen Mock get dressed in the morning shot, which seems a little bit out of place because they have she hasn't been portrayed as the impeccable supermodel. Which is fine because I think, you know, it's like if you look at the other, I mean, they don't, I mean, they they throw Zhao Wei in the bathtub, as I mentioned. And then you've got a couple gratuitous shots with Shu uh, uh, Chi. So, I mean, why not let Karen Mock, even though she's a tomboy, why not give her a moment? If oh, sure. Okay I, with sure, that. I didn't mind. And also, I'm sure the, uh, on a cop salary, she could get that view from her apartment. Because <laughs> it mm. looked like the best view that you can get uh, at that particular part of hong kong and that was what i was thinking like uh, she she, yeah. she got it she got it made this lady but uh but hey i haven't lived in hong kong maybe you can uh you can find that uh find that view uh, in, in terms of uh, action then uh, let's just start with some basics uh, how do you think uh, Corey uses the ladies because uh, as you know there's it seems like they perform the majority of the action so does he give them Therefore, a lot of complex things to do, or what's your take on the action? If you think of, for instance, Karen Mock taking down these uh, persons in the elevator initially, and maybe the girls uh, fight um, after they exit the elevator a little bit later in the movie. So, uh, what's your thought on Corey's work with the ladies? 
And in some ways, similar to what we talked about in Ace uh, 5, where you've got these not really known as you know, being trained martial artists. Um, Vicky Zhao, for example, came out of uh, her stardom from a TV drama, I think, called Princess Returning Pearl in 98, 99. And that kind of shot her celebrity up. And so this was a prime introduction of her to the sort of Hong Kong audience not really known as a sort of an action heroine into this. And so her, I think Karen Mock were, you know, perfectly well with what they're, what they're asked to do. It is a little bit indicative of the era of the wire work, not being quite as clean as what you see, you know, a decade or so earlier, but it's still, I mean, I think they handled it um, very well. She, she's done action before, before this, I mean, uh, users might have come before this and a couple of things. So where I think it starts to fall a little bit flat is in some of the some of the final sequences where there's quite a bit of more MTV-esque editing going on to cover the fact that, uh, you know, the girls are facing off with somebody like um, Karate Yasuaki. Yeah, it, that camera work comes and goes a little bit, but leans more towards the, the MTV style, as you said, uh, to, to hide some of that. Because the con- conceptually, a lot of the stuff is pretty damn fun, um, yeah. especially towards the back end with, uh, with fight scenarios that looks like they could have been lifted out of an old school movie, only because the weapons are there. And especially how they take out one of the two main opponents towards the end, how they take out that, and it's two on one and all of that. So, but it's uh, because the camera work varies, the the glimpses you catch are pretty damn great. And uh, Vicky Shaw, for some reason, I didn't focus a lot on whether Cameron Mock got to perform complex weapons work or not, but certainly Vicky Shaw versus uh, Yasuaki Kurata. She is in it, and there's a fair amount of complex moves there, 7, 8, 9, 10, or whatever, and uh, it looks exciting. Those bursts look really exciting, and I think uh, because it's sort of her movie by hour two, it's not a classical showcase of now we've given birth to an action heroine on screen that's going to rule the decade, but she certainly has a decent enough attitude because by by that point that character needs to step up and uh, shows that she is ready. In terms of martial arts and weapons, that's when she shines the most. The gunplay varies a little bit because it's it's done with wires and CG and it's a little bit floaty fakey um, when they do so. The, the, the concepts that Koryun put forth are a little bit too, I don't know, out of the range of uh, all all involved uh, skill, I don't know. So they use, they, they use computer-generated imagery and wire removal to uh, to enhance that and it doesn't look as good uh, at some point she slides you know on her knees and takes out a couple of guys that way and that, that's all exciting that's all exciting and, and good fun and uh, it, it's an indication of uh, the decade still doing some stuff for real as we talked about but also being infatuated with the western style that we always argue about this whether it's the Bourne movies that lay the groundwork for this shaky cam or not but it's certainly so close it's not done in the tradition of how Lau Gollum would shoot these movies in 1970 <laughs> or, or, or in the 70s uh, rather so it, for, for us old timers uh, we indeed 
see some stuff that's uh, that is obscure in the fact that they have come up with some genuinely clever choreography and exciting choreography. But they looked apart. I think I think the ladies looked apart. I, I really like how um, how they are used visually in that regard and not overly sexualized as such. So definitely the back end, even though we might have other notes on other sections, but definitely the back end has the highlights for me, uh, just like uh, Aces Got Places 5 did. And uh, and I think uh, the Ben Lam, Yasuaki Kurata fighting villains is a, a nice little touch to have because the, these are veteran villainous presences, uh, Kurata much more than uh, Ben Lam. But uh, I, I enjoy that, a little uh, old school tint to it all, despite it not all being shot uh, uh, extremely well so, so i would say the uh the, the sort of dojo fight is where they uh they under <laughs> they under paycheck if you will a little funny uh, just a little funny well that doesn't seem realistic but what the heck uh, chow Wei asks Kerry mock to learn the world panorama system in a day so that she can operate it from the sidelines and in a day she's an expert at that so it's the kind of movie where if you want to focus on that you can but you also need to do your best to go with uh, go with the flow, I suppose. But I found that amusing. Yeah. That, uh, she she's a fall. Well, they they had depicted her as someone with uh, she uh, can sense her surroundings quite well and determine, you know, what to do in surroundings. It seems like her her uh, like it's it's, it's extra sensory something something. She's she's almost Sherlockian. She's got like a photographic memory and. She's got a lot of stuff going on, and and I think uh, I asked a question initially. Uh, you know, out of the three ladies, I think Karen Mock comes out the strongest here. One because I like her, I think she looks great, but but also because the character is a lot more playful and a lot more vulgar in a way, uh, tomboyish, if you will. But um, she uh, she comes off uh, well, and uh, I always say that my introduction to Karen Mock was kind of amusing because. I saw her in a role where you hardly recognized her, and it was a god of cookery. So to then see her in King of Comedy, oh, it was that lady. Yeah, she, she looks great. <laughs> and and they they sort of share a, you know, she and uh, Zhao Wei sh- share this kind of sisterhood symmetry because they were both subjects of Stephen Chow movies that kind of made them homely at first and then turned them beautiful by the end. I'm not sure I have any other notes other than, you know, it's it, it's all acceptable. I've seen it a couple of times. I always find it flawed but enjoyable. And despite its thoroughly flat sections in between, and uh, which you'd hope that maybe writer Jeff Lau could have handled directing, uh, the directing side of it all. Maybe the movie would have come up as a bit more solid. But then again, this is how he wrote it. So who knows if Jeff would have been able to elevate the narrative side of things and left uh, Corey to do um, and his team to do the action. Who knows if the difference would have been there at all, but um, there's a fair few reasons why I go back to it and find it exciting for for the moment, uh, even though the, that excitement sometimes comes in bursts and other bursts are up for heavy criticism, even within action. But uh, there's, um, there's a decent amount of uh, fun here and uh, d- despite the daunting 110 minutes, uh, it uh, it goes by quite uh, quickly in my opinion so I'll, I think I'll conclude my notes there so I'll, I'll leave it to you if you want to say anything else uh, criticism or not So I mean it's really just about the action the story just 
it is really I mean even the backstory of the girls how they become a killer it's just like they they give a like a 10 second description and it's like okay there's nothing more to that I mean how did how did they, you know how how did they get as good as they are it's, it's never really given much screen time at all I you know even Karen Mock throughout most of it she's this sort of righteous cop and then by the end where I really think the you know the final act is really just a play on the killer because at one point she says uh, to, to Vicky Zhao it's like I'm not going to help you kill people and then the whole last act of the movie she's <laughs> going around killing people <laughs> it's really just like okay yeah you know it's... there's a hardly substance and nuance akin to what came out of dialogue like you're an unusual cop well you're an unusual killer akin to yeah. a killer there, there's hardly subtext to come out of that I mean I'm not defending Jeff Lau when I said that well they weren't trying in, in reality I think they were but in the end, who knows how seriously they were taking this on set when all was said and done. Maybe Jeff was content with just writing some killer stuff yeah. for Corey to do, and that would be fine. We, we know Jeff Lau can vary in quality, whether it's a writer or director. Yeah, it's fine overall. Unfortunately, it's it's not a film that works well, super well in either language. Um, I saw the Cantonese dub when it was on screen, and for this viewing, I've watched the Mandarin dub. It is good to hear a couple scenes where it sounds like they went for sync sound with some of the Zhao Wei and Shu uh, Chi interactions. But in other scenes, it just doesn't work. There's a cameo by uh, Tats Lao <laughs> who comes in. And what's a very funny sequence in Cantonese just doesn't play well in Mandarin because he's his humor is vocal. It's all about the way he vocalizes in Cantonese. He's a, he's a slightly silly informant. Uh, that's yeah. his uh, little bit. Uh, um, yeah, it, it was quite a fun reveal. But, uh, I, I don't know if they asked him literally, like, how, how do you know this stuff? And he opens up his coat and he has all these walkie-talkies presumably tuned to police frequency or whatever. Like, I know everything. So uh, a little comedic tint that the movie wasn't aiming for necessarily, but they got, <laughs> Jeff wrote something, uh, Tats, was available for that uh, 10 minutes and uh, off the wet. Yeah, so it's it's a shame that they just didn't go full sync sound with everything and just let, you know, the girls, some of the girls speak Mandarin and the other actors speak Cantonese and just do a dub for um, Song Sun Hoon when they needed to because he, he didn't actually have all that much screen time. And, and I mean, I, I ragged on him and they, for good reason at this time, but I asked our friend Paul Quinn of Hangul Celluloid whether he has... Uh, you know, any credits to his name and if he has developed as an actor. And he said that most of his success is still in TV, but he provides some good uh, uh, movie performances every now and again. So while he's not the star of the Korean scene nowadays, but he has certainly kept working at his craft. And now he's 40 years old and, and still uh, doing his thing. And, you know, he's, he's a handsome guy, but the material isn't here and he still looks a little bit, uh, you know, the new pup on the scene. I think they might have caused him based on TV success in Korea. So um, so they were trying for some Pan-Asia appeal and there's some cut footage as well. I believe uh, they're, they're maybe not a sex scene with him in UK, but in the trailers you see them lying in bed together. So there's some more stuff there, but um, he's certainly not given, uh, given anything to do here. But uh, yeah, that, that was it. I mean, we can talk uh, the availability because it feeds into that discussion of language, which is a little bit about distraction and a shame uh, for, for the movie um this was uh, produced by uh, columbia pictures asia division as were 
a couple of movies at this time. I don't even remember that, but they were producing a wide variety of uh, movies that then got wide distribution as a result. I mean, you have this one, you have Double Vision from Taiwan with Tony Leung and David Morse, uh, uh, Lu Chan's film, Kekishili, Mountain Patrol, uh, Missing Gun, I, I believe, again, Lu Chan, Big Shot Funeral, Donald Sutherland, directed by Fang Xiaogang, uh, Warriors of Heaven and Earth. So they, they were pushing for you know, attempts at quality material being produced, and there there was quite a lot of varied material, but I don't think they were achieving huge box office success across the board. Uh, out of the ones I've seen, I think Double Vision is the better example of, um, in that case, the mel- melding and merging of uh, East and West, uh, in that case, with that serial killer thriller with um, with Tony Leung and David Morse, and directed, directed by uh, Chen Kuo-Fu. It it also got quality DVD releases as a result in a way uh, that and and globally to to a degree, but but as for uh, so close, uh, Colombia indeed did put it out on uh, video across the world, and if you want to pick up any release, uh, make sure it has both Cantonese and Mandarin, and, and do what silly old me did and switch between the tracks. So whenever Xu Kei and Zhao Wei has scenes together, switch to Mandarin because. A fair amount of those scenes are in sync sound Mandarin, and when Karen Mock are interacting with cops and what have you, then switch to Cantonese, and even the businessman and Mr. Chow and all of that, those are Cantonese scenes. Tats Lao scene is in Cantonese. When Chow Wei and Karen Mock are dominating the screen for the ending, I think it's all post-dubbed, but it sounded to me like Karen Mock dubbed herself in Mandarin. Yeah, yeah. And presumably it looked like she spoke Mandarin on set, which begs the question, wasn't she good enough at Mandarin? So they c- couldn't they have had sync sound that way? But uh, it's only noticeable because it's a, it's a re- it's still a modern movie. So we sort of expect it to not sound fake. But uh, it, it certainly does. I mean, Stephen Chow, at least for two movies, speaking of Chow Wei, managed to argue that uh, why make a fuss? about the fact that people are speaking Mandarin at one end and Cantonese at one end. Uh, because if my memory is correct, that that's what he did. His scenes with Vicky Chow, uh, him speaking Cantonese and her Mandarin, there, there was no deal made of that. And it worked so much better for it, I think. Yeah, and I think in Shaolin Sakri, actually, he, he plays up the the notion of a Cantonese speaker trying to speak Mandarin as, as a short gag at one point, too. Which I wouldn't understand, and will never, because I, I can't be te- taught anything. <laughs> Is your Cantonese strong enough where you can pick up a larger percentage of verbal gags versus when you didn't know Cantonese, or, how, or how's your how's your skill? Yeah, I I think as I go back and rewatch stuff over time, you know, I there there are more things to notice, so it is helpful. But I'm still nowhere near. I mean, there's still a lot of stuff that just flies right by me. Uh, if I can just be an advocate for a moment, there's a world that opens up when you learn more of the language. But there's all, also I'm a stupid, lot of stuff. Paul. That's the problem. <laughs> there, there's also a lot of stuff too that is so contextual. I, I think of the gag from um, Kung Fu Hustle when um, Yun Hua and Yun Chu sit down with um, uh, the villain um, Lang Su Lang at a table towards the end and. If you follow the translation, I mean, it was a good attempt by the translators. What they end up translating in the subtitles is she says something like, uh, I'm Helen of Troy. And um, Yunwa says he's like the 
the Brad Pitt character. I, I forget his name. It's like, okay, that's a good translation. But if you listen to what they say in Cantonese, she's saying he's Siu uh, Lang and he's saying he's he's Guo Yi, the two characters from the Return of the Condor Heroes, you oh. know, made famous by like uh, Andy Lau and and uh, Louis Koo, I think, and other players and the comics and everything. So there's a cultural context there too that sometimes just you, you really can't translate it because Helen of Troy is not really, you know, the same kind of level. At any rate, uh, the availability section for So Close, it's uh, available here and there at a reasonable price. Uh, on eBay, I saw a cheap copy of a release. I don't know if it has Cantonese or Mandarin, but if you look at the Amazon marketplace because the DVD is out of print, uh, the prices are way too high. We're talking. I saw, saw someone selling a DVD of So Close for seventy US dollars, and forty, and over one hundred. So it's a shame it's not being repressed even in in America. Fifteen twenty dollars if you want to watch it. That's fine, but um, uh, keep it at that. Is my recommendation, uh, and uh, wait for a, a better price to come along. Uh, but anyway, we are done, and uh, we are going to wrap up really quickly. Uh, for all your podcast on fire network needs, go to podcastonfire.com. Social media buttons at the top of the website. All relevant links uh, for the episode, trailers, and links to my website and whatnot available in the show post. So, so and subscribe to us on iTunes. Listen to us on Stitcher, and follow us on the social media. As I said, so that's uh, me out. But uh, you, as I said, being a uh, a honorary co-host and co-producer get a full plug for your efforts sir so where can they find you and what's the name of your podcast well you can find us over at uh, congcast.com that's k-o-n-g-c-a-s-t.com and the show is called east screen west screen by the time you're hearing this hopefully we've had some additional content come out i've got some plans for some slightly different content to carry us through um this sort of what would have been a hiatus period in the old days as we try to, uh, you know, keep producing some content, but I try to also keep my uh, family life somewhat stable. Yeah, no one would blame you for reducing production that was already at a high rate, Paul. You know, so uh, you're, you're excused. You got two ones to look after now. Such is the life of a podcaster. And uh, also, no luck in uh, seeing movies close to you. You still uh, need to travel a couple of hours if you want to see an Asian movie um, of uh, of your choice on screen. Uh, if I can, there's been uh, quite a, a couple of Hong Kong films that have come out of late that I've really wanted to see and nothing's playing even with the lengthy drive that I can attempt to make um, to see some stuff. Nothing's been playing here locally. So it's uh, it's hit or miss now uh, with with current releases. Keep an eye out for, um, and by the time you hear this recording, it's certainly out, but uh, keep an eye out for uh, for Donnie and Andy, Chasing the Dragon. Yes. Yeah, it's a, it's a US rate, rights are already um, secured by Welgo, I believe. Yeah, I was quite surprised because uh, Andy's one that just came out, The Adventurers, I saw trailers for. I would have thought and got play, but got no play. But anyway, uh, uh, keep an eye out if you are in the States in terms of Hong Kong movies on screen. Uh, Welgo is a good company to keep uh, keep track of because they, um, they jump on rights uh, early on and uh, like Hong Kong premieres could take place almost almost at the same time as U- US premieres or, or vice versa so uh, keep an eye out for that but anyway thank you Paul uh, it's been a pleasure as always this, uh, concluding the Aces Go Places series and uh, talking uh, talking some girls with guns I love a new millennium uh, no matter how flawed it is so uh, thank you very much for that 
Uh, thank you for having me, and uh, thank you for sticking with me with my raspy voice and uh, my uh, robotic internet connection. <laughs> yeah, well, it's the it's uh, the price we pay for uh, not opting to do it do this eye to eye. But uh, there it is. <laughs> uh, but at any rate, I've been gonna be with me was uh, Paul Fox. So take us out, buddy. Sing bases, go places for him a final time. Nope. Okay. Da 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 da. You should know it in Cantonese. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> We'll sing the best friend song, don't you? A friend, da 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 friend. You definitely don't want to hear me sing, sing that. I always enjoy when I can hear Sam Hoy's songs in English. Uh, um, so, so, someone did a comment underneath one of them, maybe the Private Eyes theme song, yeah, which I think is wonderful in English. That oh, it's so bad and so poorly written, but I think uh, when I listen to it in English, no, it's rather fun. You know, uh, it's uh, matches the tone of the movie. It's grammatically correct, and Sam sounds like he has a wonderfully fluent voice i know his brother michael uh, speaks a uh, wonderful english so uh, uh so to hear sam hoy sing uh hoy brothers comedies theme songs in english is wonderful and certainly when we get them in a cisco places we hear them every now and again in the english dubbed versions uh, including uh, the friend song which i believe is called friend 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 <laughs> there it is wonder what that is about paul <laughs> it's about setting carl mack on fire <laughs> friends you need it's the friends you set on fire <laughs> or something all i want to be is your friend <laughs> if you survive <laughs>